shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These are words famously associated with the medieval mystic Mother Julian of Norwich. They're words that radiate a sense of certainty and trust in everything being for the best, everything turning out okay. A powerful sense of hope. But even Mother Julian herself, having received these words in a vision, she wasn't immune to the experience of a certain degree of doubt. She thinks about how her religion states that not everyone will be saved, but some will be subject to damnation, regardless of our personal religious or spiritual beliefs. I suspect that very few people would disagree. It's certainly the case that things are unlikely to turn out equally well for everyone. Considering all this, wrote Mother Julian, it seemed to me impossible that all manner of things should be well, as our Lord had showed me at this time. I had no other answer in any showing from our Lord God but this. What is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall save my word in all things, and I shall make all things well. What she does, in effect, is to take on trust the promise that all things will be well. Her hope is founded upon her faith. And both of these, it seems, are supported by a strong realisation through her experiences that the nature of the divine is love. There's no need to distrust something if we know for sure that it loves us. She writes, Christ makes this blessed love in us, and this was showed in everything, especially in the noble, plenteous words where he says, I am what you love. For Mother Julian, then, the divine is synonymous with love, and in her writing we can see how faith, hope and charity are all interlocked together in the mystical insights that she arrives at. But what is the nature of hope when we consider it purely on its own terms? Can it exist separately from faith and love? Mother Julian was able to take great consolation in that revelation that all manner of things shall be well. But is it wise (laughs) always to assume that will be the case? Or could it be, possibly, that hope is something potentially harmful to us? 
What caused Mother Julian a degree of doubt was the prospect of damnation, which implies that there are human beings for whom hope necessarily will yield nothing. So, it's interesting that in the most elaborate, most famous depiction of hell in world literature, Dante's Inferno, the issue of hope is raised in the text that appears above the gates of hell, through which all of the damned must enter. Abandon hope, all ye who enter, are the famous concluding words of that text. The implication would seem to be that the state of being in hell, in other words, perhaps, the state of being lost in suffering, is to be utterly devoid of hope. Whilst there is hope, whilst there is a prospect that something good eventually will come, then our suffering is not entirely absolute. We're not totally lost in it, if there's a sense that it's not forever. Unfortunately, its being forever is precisely the case for those unfortunate souls entering through the gate of Dante's Inferno. With respect to the everyday world, although it's the case that nothing here endures forever, in the realm of feelings rather than in the realm of thought, we experience something different. It's certainly possible to feel that something will last forever. And although as a statement about reality that doesn't hold, nevertheless our feelings are just as real an experience as anything else. The feeling that our suffering will go on forever can certainly be real at times. Suffering isn't helped by wanting to escape from it. Sometimes, for instance, being in physical pain and desperately wanting and wishing for that pain to cease can add an extra layer of psychological pain to the physical discomfort that we're feeling. Could it be said that hope may in fact fuel suffering at times by offering the cessation of our pain as a potentiality, even where in reality there might be no actual possibility of that. Hope on its own, it would seem, is not enough to safeguard us from suffering and pain. The broadcaster and poet Clive James, in his translation into verse of Dante's Divine Comedy, his rendition of the text above the gates of the inferno, 
in part reads as follows. From now on, every day feels like your last. Forever, let that be your constant fear. Your future now is to regret the past. Forget your hopes, they were what brought you here. Now, I think it's fair to say that James is taking some liberties with Dante's original in this rendition. And in doing so, he seems intentionally to have flipped things around, rather than hope here being something that might have offered consolation to the damned in hell. Instead, according to James, it's what brings us to hell in the first place. The damned must give up hope, because for them, that game is over. Assuming always that things will turn out for the best is, here, what leads us to the gates of hell rather than protecting us from them. Nowhere, maybe, is this question of whether hope is good for us or bad for us more fraught than in the debate that surrounds the famous myth of Pandora's box. Most versions of this myth describe how the gods sealed an assortment of evils that would inflict suffering upon mankind inside an ornate storage jar. The idea of it being a box comes from mistranslation, apparently. And the gods also create a woman, Pandora, who acts as their dupe in opening the jar and releasing those evils into the world. But Pandora shuts the lid of the jar whilst there's still one entity left inside. This entity, in Greek, is named as Elpis, a word that is usually translated into English as hope but perhaps more accurately would be rendered as something like expectation, a term that doesn't necessarily have either a positive or a negative connotation. The earliest telling of this myth comes down to us from the poet Hesiod, the woman with her hands lifting away the lid from the great jar scattered its contents, and her design was sad troubles for mankind. Hope was the only spirit that stayed there, in the unbreakable closure of the jar under its rim, and could not fly forth abroad, for the lid of the great jar closed down first and contained her. This was by the will of cloud-gathering Zeus of the Aegis. Maybe... In contrast to the versions of this myth that we might have heard in the course of our lives, the contents of Pandora's box, or more properly, Pandora's jar, in Hesiod's telling are curiously unspecific 
just troubles, evil things, sicknesses. These are the translated terms that are used. The only one of the contents of the jar that is more specifically named is Elpis, Hope. If anything, then, could it be that this myth is precisely about the nature of this thing called hope or expectation? After Pandora has opened the jar and the evils have all flown out and the lid is slammed back down upon hope, which is the only thing remaining in the jar, Hesiod tells us that this was the will of Zeus. What we might take this to mean, in other words, maybe, is that although it's in the nature of evil things to manifest in the world and make their presence felt, this possibly, somehow, is not in the nature of hope. There are many, many divergent interpretations of this myth. For instance, the idea that Pandora desperately slams down the lid to prevent hope from escaping, because hope is actually the greatest evil of them all, because it gives us a false positivity that will be constantly frustrated and cause suffering. Another interpretation I've come across leans into that neutral meaning of the Greek word elpis, expectation, to suggest that what's at issue here is expectation in its negative sense, not the positive kind of expectation that's normally conveyed by the word hope, but a negative kind of expectation that might be rendered perhaps by the word foreboding. So in this interpretation, what Pandora is slamming down the lid upon is a release into the world of a kind of negative expectation, a kind of foreknowledge of evil things before they've happened. If, say, we did possess a capacity that enabled us to accurately predict all the bad things that were going to befall us, maybe that would indeed be the greatest evil of all and would indeed make life unbearable. But the problem with this interpretation, I think, is that what's at issue is a capacity that was never given to human beings. We simply don't have the problem of knowing the bad things that might be down the road in store for us. In which case, as a myth, it doesn't have much use. What we could entertain instead is to stick with what Hesiod presents. The evils are put into the jar by the gods, and Pandora is created by the gods in order to open the jar. And it's the will of the gods also, the will of Zeus, 
that hope should remain within the jar after everything else has escaped. Could this myth be showing us and guiding us, perhaps, to understand how the nature of evil is to manifest, but the nature of hope, in contrast, is to remain as a kind of potential. The jar functions as a kind of portal between the gods and the human world. Evil things can come through that portal into our everyday reality, whereas it would seem hope does not. In this way, hope remains more on that other side of the portal with the gods. However, what do we mean when we say that hope is a potential, that hope doesn't manifest in the human world? Clearly, people can and do hope for things. A way to approach this is maybe to consider that it's very helpful, generally, to regard evil things as being real. We're probably more likely to stay alive longer if we do that. But the same cannot be said for hope. It's very likely going to be harmful if we treat our hopes as if they were realities. The healthiest approach is, perhaps, to keep our hopes fenced off from reality. As the myth suggests, it's maybe for the best that hope stays locked up in that jar. Take this kiss upon the brow, and in parting from you now, this much let me avow. You are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream, yet if hope has flown away in a night or in a day, in a vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. That's the first stanza of the famous poem by Edgar Allan Poe, A Dream Within a Dream. Very powerfully, in this poem, its narrator laments how it's been impossible in his life to hold on to anything that he cares about. Perhaps this poem shows us where we can find ourselves if, albeit humanly and understandably, we treat our hopes too much as if they were realities. The narrator of this poem has not been able to hold on to the things that he cares about, and he talks of hope having flown away, also as if it were synonymous with these things. Something curious has happened here, because 
what he hoped for hasn't turned out to be a reality for him. He seems to have given up on or lost a sense of reality altogether. All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream, he concludes. But is it really a lack of reality or a failure in reality that has brought him to this point? Or maybe instead on his part a confusion between his hopes and what reality can actually offer? Does it paradoxically start to seem as if the wisest and safest approach is to situate our hope in things that we recognise as never ever possibly being able to come to pass in reality. Poe's poem seems to shed some light on that interesting rendition by Clive James of the words over the gates of hell. Forget your hopes, they were what brought you here. The more we treat our hopes as realities, the closer maybe we approach to the environs of hell. Taking the myth of Pandora as our guide, evil things can manifest in the world. And to prevent our hopes acting upon us like an evil thing, the suggestion seems to be that we keep our hopes locked up inside that jar, which means that they remain to some degree in the realm of the gods. In the tarot, the card called the star might be said to contain elements motifs from the myth of Pandora. In this image there is a woman, young and fair, wielding two jars from which she's pouring water. She's kneeling and the focus of her gaze is very much toward the earth. Sometimes She's depicted with one foot on the earth and one foot in the water. And sometimes the water from the jars is being poured onto the earth from one and into the water from the other. In what she's doing then, there's a strong sense of some kind of linking function. She is linking elements together, linking the earth and the water. But at the same time, in this archetypal image, there's perhaps a sense of another kind of linking, another kind of flowing going on. Whilst the woman is performing this work upon the earth, in the sky above her head, a giant star is blazing typically with seven other stars glittering around it. This is a sky alive with cosmic energy 
radiating down onto the earth. And it seems to us as if this energy is coming down into the woman and she is processing it, (laughs) passing it on through the mixing and pouring action that she's performing and this energy passing through her into the urns of water the contents of which are then poured onto the land and into the stream and so that cosmic influence through the agency of the woman is now able to run freely upon the earth she is performing a linking and combining action and she herself is also apparently a link in a wider cosmic chain enabling cosmic forces from above to find manifestation and continuation upon the earth in this image the human agent crucially is female because it's the female who gives birth and this archetypal image embraces a certain perspective on the process of birth something that doesn't exist something that comes from beyond this world takes its being through the process that the woman performs and then it goes away from her the water flows and presumably keeps on flowing further and further away from she who combined and poured it she's a mother a kind of cosmic mother because what's being given birth to here is something larger than individual human beings. It's humanity itself, life itself. Life is given to us and we ride with it for a while and then it flows away from us into future generations, future civilizations and species that will continue to develop and evolve the water that she's pouring is the current of life itself and this is why the star when it appears in divination is strongly associated with the concept of hope of optimism of a brighter outlook hope is synonymous with the realisation of what this image teaches us that everything always continues to flow and evolve that may not turn out to be in forms or directions that we would prefer but once again If we're pinning our hopes on the way that specific things might appear in reality, then we're falling short of realising 
the guidance that this archetype can offer. There can be times when it feels very difficult to allow ourselves to hope for things. We might hold back for fear of feeling crushed when our wishes and expectations aren't met. Sometimes we do a bit of calculation and we decide not to hope for something because we know that the odds are against it. However, only deciding to hope for things that are likely, that isn't really hope. If there's ever anything we wish we felt able to hope for, maybe we should just do it. No calculation, no hedging of bets, just hope, no matter how unfeasible or impossible it might be. But also to be fully aware in the process of that, that what we hope for isn't going to manifest. Whoever said that hope is rational? Assuredly, it isn't. We've seen here today the dangers that can arise if we treat our hopes too much as if they were realities. We can take the woman in the archetypal image of the star as our model for hope, perhaps. She's a cosmic mother. When a mother gives birth, is she wondering whether she's going to get what she wants? It's her act of giving birth itself that is a direct participation in the creation of a future. And maybe by understanding hope as something analogous to this, our own sense of hope can come to have a positive and guiding influence in our life. 